be in Habakkuk chapter 3. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 3, we're going to be at the very last part of it tonight. Initially, the plan was to... um, to preach this, these last four verses together, but you guys are in for a treat tonight, the treat being a, a shorter sermon. I'm calling it a sermonette, even, perhaps. Um, we're going to be looking just at verse 16 tonight, and then in two weeks from now, we will finish verses 17 uh, through 19. So I lied last week, but it wasn't intentional. It wasn't my intention to finish it all tonight, but I will be covering verse 16. But we will read... Uh, 16 through 19. Let's go ahead and do that now. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. Yet, I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And he has made my feet like hinds feet. And makes me walk on my high places the choir director on my stringed instruments. Let's pray. Lord, I ask you to be with us tonight as we as we look at the beginning of this passage that, um, Lord, you would teach us what you would have us to learn from it, and uh, that we would uh, learn, uh, Lord, the important lesson that's here in the interaction between you and your prophet Habakkuk. In your name we pray, amen. Well, you probably remember, even if you haven't been with us the whole time, if you're familiar at all with the book of Habakkuk, that Habakkuk began this book in a, in a bad place. In chapter 1, we're introduced to this prophet who's, who's under extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult circumstances. The people and the leaders of Judah are living in a manner that is diametrically opposed to Yahweh, and, and that was bad enough. Right, for, for this was the these are the covenant people. They're living in idolatry and, and the violence and the and the uh, injustice that's occurring, and that was bad enough. But but what made Habakkuk's situation worse was that he was crying out to God. He had been, as we talked about, doing it for some time, crying out to God, even screaming out to God for help. And from his perspective, Yahweh was doing nothing about it. The 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 idolatry and the sin was going unpunished. And I believe, as I've, we've gone through Habakkuk, as I've gone through it, that Habakkuk knew that, that he was missing something. But from his perspective, things just were not right. Yahweh seemed to be tolerating evil. Of course, he knew that simply couldn't be the case. So he prayed. And, and God answered him, right? Yahweh was gracious, and he gave him an answer. But the answer, as we discovered, was not very comforting. The answer only created more difficulty as God revealed to Habakkuk his plan, his intention to use the Chaldeans or the Babylonians as his tool of judgment. 
but that just created more questions for the prophet. It created even more difficulties for him because he, he, he could not help but wonder how is it that God can use a people even more wicked than the, than the nation of Judah to, to, as his tool of judgment to punish Judah, his covenant people. And so he asked Yahweh, how, how can this happen? And remember at the beginning of chapter 2 he says, I, I'll, I'm going to stand, I'm going to wait for the answer, and I'm, I, I expect to be reproved. Do you remember that? It's been a while. But he says, I expect that to happen. And God does, now again, just so graciously and patiently reveal further his plan. And, and Habakkuk, the remainder of Habakkuk 2, as we went through those woe oracles, we saw that God revealed to Habakkuk that, look, the, the unrighteous are not going to go unpunished. That the people that he's using to punish Judah will themselves be the targets of his wrath. And they're going to receive the, the ju their just desserts for their own sins. Because as you recall, remember how he, uh, God even in, back in, in Yahweh back in chapter 1, now we see even from his, the woe oracles of chapter 2 that the Babylonians were, were exercising judgment, sure, um, but they were doing so in a way that was barbaric and inhumane. And so they would be punished for that. And everything that they planned for themselves to set up these great, this great empire, to build themselves houses of safety, all of that, as you recall, if you recall, was going to backfire on them. And so God discloses this to his prophet. And now we come to chapter 3, and, and we noticed that something has changed for the prophet. As he opens up in verses 1 and 2, he utters this amazing prayer of submission that we talked about a few weeks ago now, this amazing prayer of submission to Yahweh, a prayer in which, if you recall, he, he asks for God to work out his plans of judgment on the nation of Judah. Do you remember that from back from verse 2 when he says, revive your work in the midst of the years? He's asking Yahweh to do what it is that he said he was going to do. That involves punishing Judah. And then immediately following that prayer, we have Habakkuk's record of a theophany in which he sees the divine warriors coming and is conquering. And in that conquering, as we talked about, he discloses these two purposes of God in his, in his conquering. That is for judgment against the unrighteous and for the salvation of his people. And it's important, not that you've already so soon forgotten, to remember that this theophany is not just Habakkuk's retelling of the past events of the Exodus and various uh, victories in the, in the history of, of Israel and the nation of Judah. This was a vision of Habakkuk. He, he saw this happening. Now, one of the main points that we have to take away from this vision is that the theophany describes here how it is that God works. It's indicative of how he works, has worked, and will work. It's not just looking back and saying he did that. That was great for back then. But even if you recall, maybe you don't, we talked briefly about the verbs that are used there. The verbs that are used there in the Hebrew are intended to, to convey this idea of habitual activity or customary activity. This is, what, this is the way God works. He comes, he conquers, he judges sin, he saves his people. That's how he works. Now, if you think through the Old Testament, what was the inevitable response of those people who saw a theophany? What, what, what happened to them? Were they, were they just unmoved by it? Oh, that was, that's nice. That's God. 
No, I mean, inevitably in the Old Testament, they, they fell on their faces. They had some very visceral uh, response to it, an emotional, uh, physical response to seeing the moving of God. So Habakkuk has seen this. He's seen a visible manifestation of God in verses 3 through 15. And, and what is his response? Well, in our passage tonight, we're going to see how Habakkuk responded. Not, not just to the theophany of the preceding verses, but to all of his interactions thus far with Yahweh. As God has interacted with his prophet throughout this book, he's, he's not only been giving him a prophecy for his people. You understand, this is, this is a, I don't know, I don't want to say it's the most important point. This is a very important point. He hasn't just been giving a prophecy to Habakkuk to tell to the people. He's been instructing his prophet, teaching the prophet more about himself. I hope we've established that Habakkuk knew his God. He knew Yahweh. If you recall, I've said this on multiple occasions. This is what predicated all of his problems. This is what caused all of his problems. The fact that he knew God was what created these questions, but, but his understanding was incomplete. And so Yahweh took the time and patiently taught his prophet throughout this book. And what we're going to see tonight as we go through these verses is that, and, and this includes, by the way, in two weeks, in verses 16 through 19, we'll see that Habakkuk's two responses to God, to Yahweh, reveal a height deepened understanding of his sovereign God. And we're going to be looking just at the first one tonight in verse 16. Now, what we're going to see is Habakkuk's reverential response. Habakkuk's reverential response. So there are two responses here, verse 16 being the first one, 17 through 19 being the second one. And, and what, the, what these reveal is his deepened understanding of his sovereign God. Habakkuk's reverential response is seen here in verse 16. First, in the depth of his emotional reaction. This is a reaction both to the cumulative weight of the revelation he's received up to this point and, and more immediately to this to this vision of God himself, this theophany. So let's take a, a few minutes uh, tonight and, and look at look at now this emotional reaction detailed in the first four lines of verse 16. He says first that I heard and my inward parts trembled. Notice he starts off this, this passage, this, this uh, statement of trust now. He starts off with the same word that led off the first two verses of this chapter. If we go back to verse 2 for a second, what does he say? He says, Lord, I've heard the report about you, and I fear. And we've, we spent some time talking about everything that that word heard entails. In fact, uh, Pastor Mike, you talked a little bit about this this morning as we talked about the ears and the hearing. And remember, implied in this word heard is more than just noise bouncing off of the tympanic membrane, triggering the hair follicles and, and uh, sending signals to the brain. There's more going on than that. Heard implies an accepting, a submitting to, an obeying. And what was the result of what he heard? By the way, remember what what was it that he heard? He's heard these prophecies from the from Yahweh about the Babylonians coming to attack, and he knew everything that that was going to entail. Remember the, the the hooks through the jaws and the and the and the brutality and the and just the, the harshness of that. And then he, he heard also about this, this the woe oracles and the judgment that was going to come on the unrighteous. And then he saw what it was Habakkuk 
or what Yahweh revealed to him about this theophany. And all of this, everything that he had heard, his, his first reaction is that his inward parts trembled. Now that word, that verb there translated trembled, it's used four times in this chapter. Back in verse 2, when he, he prays in that prayer to Yahweh in wrath, remember mercy. That word wrath, remember we talked about how it, it was like God shaking in anger. Same word used there. It's also used back in verse 7 in the middle of the theophany as he describes the tent curtains of Midian as trembling. And also it's used later in this verse as he talks about it when he says, in my place I tremble. The idea here is that his internal organs are shaking or in constant restless motion. The best way I could think of to illustrate this, has everybody ridden on a roller coaster except for the very maybe small children? And even then you may have ridden on a children's roller coaster. You're ridden on a roller coaster, you know when you come over that, the top of that rise and the, and the car drops, and what do you feel? You feel like your stomach's somewhere up here, right? And you get this, this weird feeling right around here in your belly, and, you're, and everything feels like it's moving. Now, that's sort of a fun feeling, um, but that's sort of what, what's going on with Habakkuk. Not a fun feeling, not like riding a roller coaster, but it's as if his internal organs are moving and shaking. Here, a little more serious um, than just a roller coaster. And this is what struck me. When, uh, as, to, to try to describe what he's conveying here. When I found out about my dad uh, dying, there was a feeling inside me as if I was going to vomit. I wasn't sick but I felt like my insides were being squeezed and that, that I was going to, and this went on for a few days. I think that's what Habakkuk is saying here. He has heard, he understands what it is Yahweh is going to do. He's submitted to it. But his first emotional reaction we see here is that, that his insides feel like they're coming apart, like, like they're, they're twisting and they're turning. Then he goes on to say this, at the sound, my lips quivered. Again, that at the sound referring to this, the same thing as, as I heard. Remember, this is a poetic section, so he's using repetitive phrases here, referring to the same thing as what he heard. It says, at the sound, my lips quivered. Have you ever uh, seen uh, a child who is crying uncontrollably? And maybe you've cried this way. Uh, <laughs> maybe recently, and, and, the, and it's as if there's no control of that lower jaw, and it just, it just shakes. Have you, have you seen that? If you're a parent, you've certainly seen it. And the lips are, are, are quivering. But the, the, uh, the idea here, this, this, this quivering, um, can have the idea in Hebrew, a lot of the words that are derived from this are like symbols banging together. That, that's the idea. So you the, or, or buzzing. The lips are just banging together. The, the idea, the picture here again is this just uncontrollable emotional response. And then he says this. He says decay enters my bones. Again, this is the result of what he's heard. L literally, we could we could translate this, and, and I understand why they didn't. One, it's a longer word. It might not fit on this line. I don't know, but it's it's sort of a gross word, but. Rottenness would be a, maybe a more vivid way to, to translate this. We could say rottenness entered my bones. 
what's Habakkuk saying? The news of what's ha- going to happen, what's happening, it's made him feel as if his bones are decaying, are rotting away right within his skin. The same verb, by the way, is that is translated here, enters, decay, enters my bones, is used three times back in chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter, yeah, in chapter 2 describing the brutal activities of the Babylonians. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. It says, their horsemen come galloping, the horsemen come from afar. All of them come for violence. So just like the Babylonians are coming in to do their work, so decay has come into the bones of the prophet. And all that leads to the final statement regarding his emotional reaction, in which he says, in my place I tremble. Literally translated, under me I tremble. And it ties back, I believe, to the, this rotting of the bones, this decaying of the bones. Decaying leg bones would, it would indicate weakness in the legs, leading to trembling. They're unable to support the weight of his body. If you're familiar with the net translation, I, I like their translation here. It's, it's vivid. It's a little free. Uh, it's a little dynamic. Uh, but they translate it this way. My frame, went, my frame went limp as if my bones were decaying, and I shook as I tried to walk. Of all the English translations, and that's one of the things I do as I go th- as I go through these. I, always, I want to see like how the different how the different English translations handled it, especially in these poetic these poetic books. The Holman Christian Standard Bible. And I, w- I was just talking to Mike about this before the service. If you don't have one of those, it's a great companion Bible to get for your for your study. I think they tr- they were the best. I think that was the best. This was the best English translation. This line. He, they say this. I trembled where I stood. Now let's take in the pitiful picture of the prophet altogether, like that. The pitiful picture of the prophet altogether. He feels as if his insides are coming out. His lips and his jaw shake uncontrollably in fear, and he feels as if his bones are disintegrating to the point where he cannot even stand. I would say that all of this betrays his reverence for Yahweh. Why else would he be struck so so powerfully he knows that God is as good as his word and the reverence that he has for Yahweh causes him to be undone I wonder uh, and maybe this is true maybe it's not but do we let our our firm our, our right belief in the sovereignty of God allow us to become cold to pain and suffering I know this, it's probably not much of a problem when it comes to your own pain and suffering. Right? When, you, when, when pain or suffering strikes you, difficulty strikes you, it's probably not too hard to, to be warm to the idea of suffering, even though you understand fully or have a, a strong, robust belief in the sovereignty of God. But, but how do you respond when you hear of extreme trials that others are going through? Is there something more than it's? It's. I'm. I'm glad. I'm glad it's not me. I, I don't. I don't believe that Habakkuk's visceral response here was was just uh, self-directed. That it was purely a self-directed response. That he was only, he was only having this difficulty because how it affected him. His response, I believe, was was based on the coming suffering of his people. 
he, he there, look, we don't know. There was no real promise here that Habakkuk was going to come through this unscathed. So certainly he was. He probably had some personal fear. But this this reaction, this is a this is an extreme emotional reaction. He's coming apart, and I believe it's based on his his love for his people. Look, we can't. We we have got to be really careful. It, I look. I'm I'm a firm believer in the sovereignty of God, but that we can never let that in, encroach on our feeling of other people's suffering, of their pain. Habakkuk had this response to it. This, this really should be our response as we think about perhaps even the coming judgment on those, on the unrighteous, on those we, we know that aren't believers. It should, it should really shake us up, shouldn't it? We think about those people that, that, that we know that if they don't submit to the lordship of Christ, they will spend an eternity suffering in hell. Shouldn't that shouldn't that shake us up? Well, Habakkuk was. He was moved. And see in the next part of verse 16, and, and this is why I've, I'm absolutely confident to say he was not just self-directed in his in his response because. Look at the end of verse 16. What does he say there? Does he say, I must wait for distress and for invaders to come upon me? Woe is me. What does he say there? He says, to come upon us. So clearly he had in his heart burdening him, causing him to be completely undone, the coming suffering of his people. And then we see, in the latter part of verse 16, his volitional reaction. So first we saw his emotional reaction in those first four lines, and now we come to the latter part of the verse and we see his volitional reaction. Volitional is a, a big word for will for you kids, right? You learn a little vocabulary tonight. Volitional is a big word for will. So as we come to the end of this verse, we see it. Well, we're going to see a section here that can be understood in a couple different ways. And you pardon the excursus here for just a second, but but this is a, sort of important. This verse can either be translated following the New American Standard here, which says, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us, or following the English Standard Version, yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who will invade us. Did you catch the, did you catch the slight difference there? Now, now, I mentioned this, and you, you may be wondering, perhaps, why I would bother mentioning this. Well, I know there are several who use the English Standard Version. I, I use it as well. And I, I don't want you to leave puzzled because there is a bit of a difference here. The, the grammar does seem to support, and again, without going into great detail here, the grammar supports, I believe, the NASB's translation, that he is waiting for the day of distress. He is waiting for the people to arise who will invade. But... In any case, the difference really is negligible. Whether the prophet speaks of waiting for an invasion or waiting for judgment to come on the unrighteous, the fact is that both will occur, and they will occur in that order. The issue is this here. The prophet's making a volitional statement, a statement of the will. Now, his reverential response is what we're looking at here in this verse was seen first in this emotional reaction, this extreme emotional reaction. And, and we now see it here 
his reverential response and his volitional reaction as he understands that there's nothing more that, that he can do. He must simply wait for God to perform what he has promised to perform. And so he says, I must wait for distress, or I must wait quietly for the day of distress. That line there translated, I must wait quietly by the New American Standards, probably better understood as, I must be settled. That The idea there with that verb is indicating the absence of movement or being settled in a permanent place. There, there, there's this, word, this verb has overtones of finality, of, of definiteness. What he's saying is, I just have to stop. I have to be settled. I have to be accepting. I would translate it this way, because I must be settled for the day of distress. Now we're distress here. All the words that are derived from it have, or nearly all of them, have this idea of binding or narrowing or squeezing in upon. Theological word book of the Old Testament says of this word, it may also refer to the strong emotional response that one experiences when pressed externally by enemies. So Habakkuk is saying here that as an act of his will, he is going to remain settled. And he's going to wait as he was commanded, if you recall, back in chapter 2, verse 3. Look there for a second. Chapter 2, verse 3 of Habakkuk. Remember, there were the, the, the Yahweh, as he started the second answer to Habakkuk's prayer, he gave him a few commands. He was supposed to record the vision and inscribe it on tablets. That's in verse 2. And then he, he makes this comment, or he makes a statement to Habakkuk. The vision, is, the vision is for the appointed time. It hastens to the goal, will not fail. And then we have this command. Though it tarries, what does he tell him to do? Wait for it. It will certainly come. It will not delay. So what Habakkuk is, is affirming as an act of will that, he, that he's going to obey. He's, he's, he's waiting for distress He's waiting for the invaders, the Babylonians, to come and exercise their judgment on Judah. And that's that second line where he says, for the people to arise who will invade us. The word translated here, to arise, is the same word that describes the activities of the Babylonians back in chapter 1 and verse 15. They are the ones who bring up all of their victims with a hook. They're the ones who are coming to invade. You remember that? We talked quite a bit about that line. Do you realize what the prophet is saying here? We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but despite what many commentators say, it's clear, isn't it, that his questioning is done, that he's done asking questions? Would any of us read this plainly and say that there are questions here? Despite what commentators say, he's done arguing. Not that he was arguing before. He's done discussing. He's done asking his questions. He's making this clear statement of will. I'm going to rest. I'm going to wait quietly. I'm going to be settled and wait for your judgment to come. Would you and I, would you or I be capable, do you think, of this act of will? If we knew this kind of judgment was coming on our country? Would we just be able to sit still and say, accept what Yahweh has said he's going to do, what God has said he's going to do? It's really important that we understand like Habakkuk did that there comes a time when our questions have to cease. When we must simply subject ourselves to the will of God. Because this is for this is for me. 
all right, because I'm a, I'm a guy who's always asking questions and probably never satisfied with the answers that I get. But Habakkuk's done. He's, he's asked his questions, and now he says simply, I must wait. I have to wait. I don't have any other choice here. I know what you're going to do. I know it's coming. And this isn't um, this isn't fatalism. This isn't ah, I know what you're going to do. I, you know I don't like it. We I think we established that back in verse, verses one and two. But he must simply wait, and his questions are done. Now, how is it that Habakkuk was able to do that? Well, God gave him a vision. He told him what he was going to do. He gave him this vision of a theophany. As I was going over this for a final time, it struck me, what about us? Do we, do we get visions and prophecies today? I know there, there are good people who, who say we do. I, I would politely disagree with them. I believe that there are principles in the New Testament that tell us we have everything we need. So we're not looking for visions or prophecies to get us to this place. What, what are we looking for? What do we do? How do we get to where Habakkuk got? How do we get to this place where even though we're coming apart, we're, we're just destroyed by whatever the situation is, and granted it's almost not, definitely not worse than what he was going to experience, but Look, we, we all suffer. But how do we get to this place where we can just rest and say, I, I trust you. And, and we'll, we'll establish this or we'll talk more about this as we go through the remaining verses. But how do we get there? I would encourage you not to wait around for a theophany. Okay? I would encourage you not to wait around for a vision. So where do we turn? We turn to the source of revelation that he's given us, to the Bible. And, and, we, and we sort of, in a way, we circle back to where we started, where Habakkuk's problems were because he knew his God. Remember, we've talked about this off and on throughout as we've gone through Habakkuk, that we must go back to this book. We, we study this book and we learn about God. And the more we learn about God, we, we learn that he tells us how he's faithful and we see examples of how he's faithful. And we learn about how he works and what he does. We know that as we look at, for instance, 2 Peter 2, 3, that he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's given it to us in this book. We have it. And if we can't get to this place that Habakkuk got to, if we can't get to this place where we are settled and trusting that he's going to do what he's going to do and we just trust him, can I say it's our own fault? It's our own fault because we haven't availed ourselves of the truth that he's given us. We haven't learned about him from his book. We haven't learned about his character. We haven't learned about what he's done in the past and what he promises to do in the future. It's our own fault. If we can't do what Habakkuk did here and this reverential response as he, as he just was settled, settled regarding what was coming. The exhortation is probably in there, right? I've just sort of been asking questions, but we, we've got to do this. We've got to get into this book. We've got to study it. We've got to come to know this God that we say we, we serve. 
And if we wait until we're in the middle of that difficult time, when, when we're in the middle of the Babylonians attacking, we're going to be in trouble. Now is the time to do it. When things seem like, hey, they're going smooth, don't rest. Pursue God. Pursue knowing him. Because then when the difficult times come, you can react the way Habakkuk reacted here. Now, it's possible, and, and we're closing now. If we ended here, that it, it would be possible. I, I don't I hope not, based on what I've shared with you, but you could, if you, if you stopped at verse 16, develop an unhealthy or fatalistic attitude. Well, it's just a matter of, okay, whatever, God, you're going to do what you're going to do. I'm, I'm going to sit down and wait for it. But that, but that is absolutely not the picture. Habakkuk's change isn't complete. As we, as we go through in a couple weeks, 17 through 19, we're going to see Habakkuk's willing response in these remaining three verses and this powerful statement of trust, and not just trust, uh, cold, uh, whatever. Uh, yeah, I know I trust you, but, but praise to God in this situation. We're going to see that as we go through verses 17 through 19. In a couple of weeks, I hope, hopefully we get to do that. Lord will come back. He can come back. That's fine. But hopefully we'll get a chance to cover these last three verses in a couple of weeks. So let's pray, and then we're gonna uh, we're gonna sing a song, right, Stephen? That's on the docket. Okay, we're gonna close with a with a song. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, this passage. Thank you for this this book. Thank you for your prophet. We're not glad he suffered, and we're not glad that people suffered but we are glad for what we can learn from his reaction to you and uh, lord i ask you you would uh lord rebuke our hearts for not doing those things we we know we need to do for not pursuing knowing you through your word that you've given us and lord i ask ask you would help us to commit ourselves to doing that so that we'll be prepared for difficult times so that when they come we can rest settled knowing that that you are a faithful God. In your name we pray, amen.